0: is the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales.
1: We're utilising robots, drones, sensors and other technologies to collect and
2: visualise data. And we're looking carefully at how we manage big agricultural data, how we can learn from it, store it securely and share it efficiently to benefit farmers, researchers and stakeholders.
3: That's where we are today, the Country Hour Broadcasting from the Digital Agri-Food Summit here in Wagga at Charles Sturt University and uh, the Vice-Chancellor there there sort of summing it up as to what's on the agenda today.
2: That's right, that's CSU Vice-Chancellor Professor Renee Leon and as well as some of the technology that she's talking about there, another focus of this conference, Michael, is basically looking at the connection between the technology and putting it to work on the farm so it can drive profits for farmers and importantly, also how it might be able to help in things like meeting compliance and demonstrating sustainability credentials. So jam-packed program of, of speakers and case studies which are delving into some of those gnarly challenges as well as the opportunities for ag tech.
4: There's
3: quite a few challenges in the space and also you know that whole idea about uh, increasing production, increasing uh, productivity, but also having a, an accent on the environment too. And that was an important part of what they were t- discussing here today as well too.
2: That's right, that idea of natural capital and being able to demonstrate that throughout the supply chain which is something that's being increasingly important for many of our supply chains and overseas export customers I
3: will be talking to uh, the former UN chief senior uh, environmental expert who's uh now branched out on her own into another company we'll hear a bit more about that uh, later on but uh, we're joined now by uh, David Lamb who's the chief scientist with the food agility CRC and one of the guest guest note speakers here uh, keynote speakers good afternoon welcome to the country hour
5: thank you Michael pleasure to be here
3: and well i guess the thing is you know the the key is that uh, we, you're talking about the opportunities and you know the opportunities are, are huge for uh, production but you're also talking about some of the challenges ahead and so it's it's a dual-edged sword isn't it at the moment
5: look it is sure we've still got the same challenges that demand technology-based solutions telecommunications and connectivity you know remains a sort of a, a limitation but it's it's come a long way in the last five years so that that's a challenge still there but there are some wonderful solutions on the way but interesting enough it's the market Demands the need for credentials, the need for assurance that really is bringing into focus uh, some of these core opportunities that we need to deliver solutions against.
2: Now, you've been working in ag tech and digital agriculture for decades, David Lamb. I suppose when you look at the adoption of that kind of technology on Australian farms, in a sense it's been a little bit ad hoc and inconsistent do you think as you say it's going to be um, the carrot or the stick i suppose that's really going to drive producers to adopt those sorts of solutions or what are the big problems there
5: look it's still the carrot and the stick at the end of the day you know a great quote that came out of this morning's session was that you know Profit moves money, so you know it, we have to be profitable, and you know our profitability now will be realised through you know access to new markets. They may be finicky, but at the end of the day, they're new markets, and we have the capability to meet. The roadway to innovation in in our agri-food sector is still littered with the corpses of failed solutions, or at least solutions stood up for inappropriate reasons or inappropriate um, situations. What we've done now is, you know, five years ago we had an investor fueled tech bubble, you know, almost ready to pop. There, you know, there was products and solutions coming out of the woodwork for producers and value chain actors. What we're now seeing is we're now into that sort of that plateau there where we've now got good, solid, deliberate innovation going around, good reliable products and services. Thanks now to market demands, or dare I say, it, um, Because of the challenges thrown up by, you know, the requirements to access markets through assurance, traceability, uh, credentials around land management, you name it, then these stable technologies and solutions are now taking a good solid hold in the marketplace where they belong.
3: I I actually had a question about more nuts and bolts about on the farm. Now we're seeing, you know, we're seeing the, you know, the talk about um, uh, artificial intelligence. We're also seeing, you know, the robots, the drones. but the question is, the up- uptake wouldn't be as good as you would e- e- be expecting. We're only seeing pockets where it's happening. And you- you'd like to see it spread further or, or in the time frame that we've had, it hasn't maybe spread as far as you would have liked.
5: Uh, and no, and but, you know, it's an understandable and well-trod Um, Path in terms of that pathway to adoption. You know, we've got that sort of innovation kickstart and we get that hype around, you know, this is what's going to happen, this is what we can do for you. We're crashing through that trough of disillusionment that comes when a lot of people play with or or, or experiment or deploy some of these systems. Maybe they're not really ready for it, or dare I say, maybe the product wasn't ready for them. And so um, you're right. We're in that slow, deliberate rebuild phase, you know, there are only very few examples I could think where artificial intelligence machine learning is actually being used, not being promised, but actually being used in a practical sense in a production system environment. Now, it's coming, but, you know, that hype that, that we heard of, you know, two, three years ago, it's its, it's not being realised. The same with robotic systems, you know, and autonomous systems. We've got... Um, pockets of emergence around Australia in certain sectors of you know robotic systems but at the end of the day there are the hard yards and and we spoke about this at last year's summit around the roadway to you know the pathway to um, to robotic future and that is you know we've got to deal with the social the regulatory um, components of it as well and the fit for purpose technology but many of those services that are now appearing in the marketplace have done the hard yards over the last five years so you know it's a slow rebuild
2: The Food Agility CRC is co-hosting this conference today with Charles Sturt University and I suppose we're seeing a lot of those um, technologies on display here with exhibitors and we've got some case studies which I suppose are real mavericks and innovators in adopting some of that technology. But how do you get that from, from those innovators... To farmers who, you know, may have been collecting data for a long time and using those sorts of, you know, meters in tractors and that sort of stuff, to actually taking the next step and um, investing in uh, technology to, to use that better.
5: Well, we're using this innovative group of producers and value chain actors to great effect as being the, the actual carter of our communications capability. Look, at the end of the day, just like you do with this, with this amazing um, broadcast every day, you know, you talk to the producers and the value chain actors and you share their experiences. Don't hear it from the, uh, from the academics, don't hear it from the ag tech uh, providers hear it from the users and their success stories. And that's Look over the back on. fence. Absolutely, and listen to the noise behind us. They're the people that are using it and they're talking to each other and sharing experiences as we speak.
3: Oh, the other question before you go about connectivity. I was on a farm yesterday. We had a uh, devil of a time trying to get enough connectivity to do the broadcast from yesterday. People don't realise how difficult that was yesterday, but anyway, we got there in the end. But uh, that's... And, and one of the farmers there said, this is the problem. This is the problem with having all these apps and these phone apps and the and the tractor that can uh, connect via satellite and all the or via uh you know the the internet but we don't have the connectivity here we'd like we need so much more and he said we need it to be spread out over over you know the australian farmland they're doing it in, in japan they're doing it in europe you know that's that's holding people back
5: sorry i'll have to ask that question condo <laughs> are you <laughs> dropping out you're dropping out yeah. no seriously <laughs> So you, so you
3: feel my pain?
5: I feel your yeah. pain, we feel your pain. And look, you know what, I mean, we, in the, what's happened in the last three years, you've got um, technologies like low Earth orbit satellites, Starlink, for example, one example. You've got OneWeb, which is which is offering up um, capability around you know satellite-based mobile cell capability. We've got our terrestrial telecommunications providers, which are slowly filling the gaps, but at the end of the day, they've got to focus where the population either is or is moving. Okay, so we get that. But look at the plethora now of startups. ZFi is just one example. You know, these these startups are now offering farm-wide Wi-Fi that's anchored to a gateway that uses either the mobile network or, for example, on the global digital farm here, our farm-wide Wi-Fi is anchored to a single point, which is going to Starlink. We've now got um, a lot of um, interesting work coming out around Halo technology. This is 10-kilometre-type Wi-Fi range. So, you know, the the... The big telecommunications side of town they're filling the gaps the only way they can with the with the market drivers they have to work with but there are an increasing number of providers that are filling the gaps and that's a good thing hopefully broadcasts year on year moving forward won't suffer the problems you had yesterday condo
2: but essentially it comes down to there there are those solutions private solutions which are on offer but people have to invest in those solutions, and it can be expensive for people. Do you think we need a policy? You know, is is there a role for government to play in supporting agriculture in terms of connectivity to be able to tap into these digital technologies and drive our productivity towards the goal like the 100 billion?
5: Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we've got state-led initiatives, you know, New South Wales, just for an example, with their, uh, with their, with their neutral host provider model, you know, you know put up our infrastructure and let it be shared amongst providers. But at the same time, we're seeing our telecommunications um, Organisations, are big ones, now partnering up with these small startups for that extra mile worth of solution. Now that's a good thing because markets dictating they need to do that, and these startups, these innovators that are working on the gaps, are getting a meaningful role in the marketplace, which is what they need and what our producers deserve.
3: David Lamb, appreciate your time as always on the Country Hour. Thanks for that.
5: It's a pleasure, Michael. Thank you.
3: It's uh, coming up to a quarter past 12.
0: The New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales.
3: Now, Emily, you were walking around the conference earlier on and you were having a chat to some people. What were they saying?
2: Yeah, there's 400 uh, industry stakeholders here and I suppose ranging from a a variety of backgrounds and, and places within the ag tech place. And it was really interesting to come across them. Here's what some of them had to say. It's about taking the first step and trying and failing, I think this is something that we do, certainly we see with uh, sustainable farming practices. You do, you try, and sometimes you fail and you try again. I'm um, Sandy Gain, I'm the climate and sustainable sourcing lead for Mars Pet Care in Australia and New Zealand. There's a lot of powerful tools out there to help us reduce our climate footprint um, in our in our supply chain, so I'm very excited to see what's out there and how we can leverage technology to. Drive our sustainability agenda forward.
6: Okay, uh, so my name is uh, Hira Jose. I'm doing my PhD from Curtin University. My uh, focus is on uh, digital intervention in pork industry, so how it can help to reduce the mortality in pig industry. But my focus is mainly on the consumer side, how this digital intervention uh, in animal welfare, whether that will motivate consumers to uh, increase their consumption or not. That is what I'll be looking at. So basically, uh, I'm not into the the supply, uh, like not into the production, but I'm more into the consumer side,
2: And so the tech that's used as part of this project is pretty amazing. It's using, like, ear tags, which have health monitors on them and can monitor the health of um, pigs in a commercial operation. And then you're looking at... Whether that sort of information will motivate consumers
6: exactly exactly that's right because uh, this is a very big project in which various industry partners are involved in it, and uh, we are looking at uh, the one side is that it will definitely helps the uh, industry partners to to reduce the mortality rate and uh, the second thing is that whether this digital intervention uh, whether it it will motivate consumers to buy the Bulk products or not that is what i'll be looking at
7: uh james thompson i uh, work for am investment group yeah which is uh head offices based in brisbane
2: what's brought you to the conference here in Wagga Wagga regional new south wales today uh
7: look we're very involved in regional agriculture and um you know food and, and we've got uh pastoral assets and sawmills and chicken farms so yeah keen to see you know what's happening and what's happening in our space and yeah what opportunities there is
2: is digital agriculture something that excites you
7: Look, it does, funnily enough. I'm not too sure why, but, um, yeah, look, it does. I think it's it's about doing things more efficient um, and utilising data. It's only as good as, as what you capture. So, yeah, look, it, it is, and I think it's um, it's where the future's certainly heading.
2: What do you hope to get out of today?
7: Uh, look, hopefully learning more things, yeah. I think you can never stop learning, so I think that's the biggest thing, and, um, yeah, finding out what's out there and, and what we can use better.
8: My name is Nishino, I'm from Japan, and I come from a company called NTT, and we do a lot of IT investment into agriculture in Australia.
2: So what excites you about digital technology in agriculture?
8: Uh, because uh, digital technology in agriculture is uh, very, I think a lot of things are still in, doing in a traditional way, uh, which with technology we can change a lot of process to a better way, and...
2: And what's your assessment about how technology is used in Australian farming systems compared to what you see in Japan?
8: Uh, Japan is a little bit advanced because we are facing a lot of uh, labour issues uh, because people are getting old uh, in Japan. Uh, one in fifth Japanese are getting 80s. So we are trying to do a lot of uh, investment into digital, doing the drones and sensors uh, where we can try to contribute that to Australian and agriculture.
2: So, uh, I suppose, what are you hoping to get out of this conference here in Wagga Wagga in regional New South Wales in a farming area?
8: Yeah, Uh, the first one is I would like to understand the current uh, situation of how the agriculture in Wagga Wagga and in whole Australia. And after that, if we can adapt something from Japan to Australia to contribute to Australian agriculture, that would be good.
3: The attendees at the conference here, the Digital Agri-Food Summit, being held at Charles Dirt University, we just uh, heard from David Lamb, from uh, Food Agility CRC, and uh, one of the other keynote speakers at the conference was uh, Michael Whitehead from ANZ. He's also a farmer as well, he tells us, with with delight, even though the sheep prices aren't great at the moment.
9: Luke was a farmer and a proud Western Victorian farmer as well. Yes, sheep prices are absolutely down, and maybe that might be around for a little while with those spring lambs coming on at the moment. A good buying opportunity for some people, (laughs) and they will come back on again eventually. (laughs)
3: putting a positive spin on it there Michael Whitehead uh, the other thing is you were talking about was um, you know the big picture stuff now you also I was fascinated by the, the discussion about um, you know our farms getting bigger and uh, you said that you know the the uh, information we're getting from a bears and from all around the place is absolutely they're getting better which which is a bit of a surprise I suppose people you know that, that the family farm it's still there, but, it's, it, but it is getting bigger.
9: Look, there's a number of ways we could look at this, and those of us who love our agricultural history could almost see this as a continuation of the soldier settlement plan. So we had a lot of small farms back 50, 60 years ago. People could still make a living off them. People wanted to be on them. But gradually we've either seen those people get out and farms consolidate the whole big phenomenon could be called people buying the neighbours and buying the neighbours. And as we continue to see this generational change, uh, some second generations increasingly are wanting to come back and we see two generation farms... But the farmer next door may well be saying, I'm getting a great price for things now. I've been doing this for years and I loved it. It's time to stop this game and buy a house by the sea. So we really are seeing less and less farms, but bigger and bigger farms. And that can be seen as a positive in a lot of ways because it brings more of that efficiency and the potential to do more exciting things on a farm and for those generations to explore it.
3: And a couple of things there, more economies of scale, but also you you need more technology
9: you absolutely do and we see the technology coming onto these farms in so many ways Uh, the modern tractor for example would have been seen as science fiction 20 or 30 years ago uh, but the ability to be able to justify some of your big spend on the technology and farm machinery on your bigger operations, you wouldn't be uh, seeing it on the small operations but on the big ones it makes sense the technology in irrigation across so many of these properties too and what that means for water savings, what that means for, for runoff. And then I suppose importantly, because you've got two generations on a farm, and presumably the younger generation's been at uni in the city and learnt a whole lot of things, they are going to be more excited about exploring what could be implemented on a farm going forward.
3: So more family fights around the table?
9: Well, more constructive discussions (laughs) around the table, (laughs) yes.
3: There's that positive spin again. But but the age of farmers, uh, from the survey uh, you put up from Abares from the 1990s through to today. Day, it's gone from the average age of 53 to an average age of 64. Is that bit driven by technology or what, what's happening there?
9: Look, that's, uh, that's I'm going to put a positive spin on things again, because if you look at that, that 64-year-old who, according to the figures, is the age of the prime decision maker in the farming operation, sometimes we joke maybe that's the person in the family who filled in the farm survey, but that could also say that these are the farmers who've bought the neighbours, who still have a passion for the industry, we know things are changing so your average 64 year old is is much healthier uh, than they would have been in the past Uh, they're working with their other generations on the farm and, and they're really looking positively at the future so so it's it's a very good sign for the industry that will change eventually they will retire so we'll probably see a change in that upward trend
2: so, in terms of ag tech, you know, you, from a, a banking, finance, or investment perspective, what do you see as the key drivers? Is it something like reducing labour and going on to things like meeting compliance?
9: It's become a fundamental component component of the modern farm so all of those things you talked about whether it is increasing margins whether very much it's being ready to meet new regulations and requirements which will come from your buyer your your supermarket you're buying off uh, if you're needing to meet trade regulations going forward uh, if there are future government regulations as well Um, so and, and making you I suppose a more efficient farmer and making you more profitable going
2: forward. ANZ also had a survey of its clients which was looking at some of the adoption of AgTech and some interesting findings there about... um you know, what's preventing it?
9: Absolutely. So we, we talked to a large range of farmers across a range of industries and said as far as adopting things, what's a low, a medium or, or a high barrier? Uh, almost unsurprisingly, and those of us who drive around a lot of Australia know where the, the phone black spots are, um, oh, that's what's that, internet that access. is thorny
3: issue again. We are just talking about David Lamb, exactly this issue. Yeah.
9: yeah, so internet access was one point and how things work on the far corners of your farm. The other one's an interesting structural one. And it was about how applicable is it to my operation? Is it a solution looking for a problem? And so therefore, this is going to be a challenge for AgTech tech and for the wider industry. How do we get the message across to so many farmers, this will benefit you, uh, this is cost applicable to you, and it's something that will help in the busy day-to-day running of your operation.
2: And so from a banking perspective, are you supporting investment in that kind of technology?
9: Absolutely. This is, as we talked about in the conference before, this is still at the relatively early stages. So much ag tech update. So we are absolutely working with farmers to tell them what's out there, looking at it as part of when they build their operations and and what a bank will support there as well. And not only that, um, but the bank is also looking at the venture capital side. How can you work not just with the farmers, but with the ag tech side to develop at the same time? The other
3: issue you also raised was this issue of corporate investment in ag culture you, you said it uh, went into a bit of a downward spiral because of covid it's really on its way back you're saying like ma- in a massive way and they see australia with ukraine and the problems in europe and the problems we're seeing in the middle east australia is seen as a food security safe haven now
9: Absolutely, if we have some major benefits and look we Australian Ag people always knew we were the most efficient big farmers in the world. Uh, We don't get subsidised so that means that we are efficient. The rest of the world needs more food certainty than it did before. It worried about supply chains breaking down during COVID and we have such relatively low political risk compared to so many of our other competitors that global investors are saying food will be an increasingly good place to invest and Australia will be a place to focus and Now, as you say, post-COVID, they can fly back into here, look at the asset and make the investment decision.
3: Michael Whitehead from the ANZ, thanks for joining us on the program today. Thank you. Enjoy the conference. It's 27 minutes past 12.
0: On ABC Radio New South Wales, this is the New South Wales Country Hour.
3: And we're joined now by uh, Jackie McLeod, who's uh, with Downforce Technologies. So, uh, really looking at some of those, some of the ways we can uh, measure things using technology. I guess would be would be the the key uh, way in which uh, your technology company has been set up. But also, interesting to hear that your background is really interesting as well, because you're the, you're the UN chief um, senior environmentalist as well. So you come from that environmental background. I, I, first of all, um, a lot of people hear about people working for the UN and they think they're there for life and that they're just going to become a bureaucrat and they're <laughs> living in New York. and but you've you've actually said, okay, we want to look look at what's happening on the
4: ground. Absolutely. You know, one of, the, one of the dangers of being in the UN, and prior to that I ran the European Environment Agency, oh, even dear. worse, oh, yeah. EU, you know, oh my gosh, and unfortunately helped to develop some of, the, some of the agricultural mechanisms that we are talking about at the meeting today, so you couldn't get too far away from reality. So when I left the UN and I made a purposeful decision to go back to reality, in a sense, and put my feet back on the ground, helped by the fact that I had recently got married to a a Maasai chief, so I couldn't avoid being on the ground, and I was confronted then by, okay, droughts, cattle, uh, these two go together, but unfortunately in East Africa, unlike here in Australia, thousands and thousands of cattle dying alongside with people. And I think the crisis that I saw was this was not necessary if we had had not just the right information, but the right investment, (laughs) the right ways of approaching technology and smart ideas. Because literally, if you look at continent for continent, East Africa and Australia have got very similar things going on. You know, the main difference is that we've got what's called a demographic dividend. We have got millions of young people who are looking for that kind of employment. And I think it's a huge opportunity coming to Australia with a company like Downforce to see the best performing and to have the data to be able to demonstrate which farmers are really getting the most out of their land, able to sequester carbon, put you know soil health back on the top agenda and think... I could translate that into an East African setting. That's the most exciting thing that I find working here in Australia,
3: and a huge dividends from that as well. Um, and dealing with climate variability that you know is getting worse with global warming and things like that. But also, that's where I guess you have to bring in the technology into Africa, and, and to, in order to upscale the production and, and be able to eliminate some of
4: that risk. What I see, though, is technology needs great handling. Um, you know, a farmer is in and herself, himself, a, a bundle of technologies all brought together. It's called experience, and literally that lived experience is what we miss some way in a place like East Africa. But it's the combination of knowing how to use smart agri-techniques, whether it's drones or you know, high-end tractors, everything fits together around that person. Bring that person to another location, another continent, and where you've got fairly similar environmental conditions with El Nino and the droughts and the floods, and it suddenly sparks a whole catalytic process
2: where literally you could make a difference within a few years, so. And in terms of technology to help people do that, Downforce technology, I suppose, brings together data from a number of sources, including satellite imagery and that sort of thing, to provide sort of real-time view of what's happening down to a paddock scale. What are the opportunities there in terms of being able to measure and track natural capital? Well there are huge
4: opportunities so let me start at the paddock level because despite the fact that people think they know their land actually what Downforce is able to provide is almost like an x-ray an audit not just of today but the last six years so we give a kind of historical picture which is incredibly important when you're thinking about exporting or even selling a premium product because you don't want to just appear from nowhere you want to show that pedigree of how you've been looking after the land And that's really important from a natural capital process, as we call it. It's like all the asset that you have, the water, the land, the soil, the biodiversity, that adds up to an extraordinarily valuable asset. And what downforce can do is talk very cogently, I think, to the interventions and actions that farmers have taken, but actually show what happened. So three years ago, you did this. Look, this is what happened to carbon. This is what happened to biodiversity. This is what happened to your water at the paddock scale. But then if you've got hundreds of thousands of hectares, it's the same analysis all the way up. And then I'm really pleased to say we have just heard that we've got our ISO certification. That's not trivial because in an international setting, you want recognition for the kind of product that comes from a farm that is well managed.
3: Well, especially if you're trying to sell to Europe, for example, they want that.
4: Exactly, and an ISO certification, I can tell you, rides very well on the waves of the regulations that are in place, in places like Europe and elsewhere. Because in a sense it says, oh, it's been independently verified, independently certified. So if you claim that you're net zero, but then you have an ISO certification alongside of that, then you get the tick in the box. And that's a huge turn for the good, because it means those who have been doing good things on the ground will actually get that recognition.
2: And so big picture, is the cost for producers, um, not just with your technology but on a broader scale, big picture, is that going to become cheaper and more easily accessible for average farmers to be able to tap into to do things like meeting that supply chain requirement for these sorts of things?
4: That was always at the heart of what I wanted from downforce. My idea was to use the public investment that we've done for 10 years, 20 years, in data, in knowledge and information, turn it around into something that could be used by a farmer where they would not bear the costs of all that investment. So this is like the best return on investments for governments that you can get. So my hope is, and we're already seeing it, is that by giving the right information at the right time, you can make really crucial decisions around do you need an input well actually you don't need it but i don't need to go and take let's say many many samples i can get that big big picture in a cost-effective way, so you can reduce the input costs, you can reduce the overall costs, and more importantly, you can be more strategic and more effective when you do have to put things on the ground into your different cropping. Which
3: works in Africa when people don't Absolutely. have a lot of money, and it works in Australia in the marginal lands here where people don't want to spend a lot of money as well. Look, we could talk for for hours. It's been fascinating to have a Thank chat. you Very briefly, but we sort of get a flavour of uh, of, of what's happening. But thanks for joining us on the program today.
4: Thank you so much.
3: And uh, we're. Um, it's uh, 25 minutes to one, so we should get some news headlines now from Adam Story. He's been
10: waiting patiently. Sorry about that. No, I've just been here watching the telly. Cut. That's all right. Ah. Chatting to Dave. Having a chat. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah.
3: Cup of coffee.
10: Yeah. Mm. All right. Um, What's point, in the news? Uh, the uh, uh, Qantas chairman, Richard Goiter, has announced he's going to retire before the company's annual general meeting in late 2024, uh, he said this is in recognition of the reputational issues the airline's facing, and it wants uh, he wants to restore trust in the company, and he's he issued to... Another,
3: he wants a salary for another year.
10: Yeah, that, well, that's it. It's late 2024, <laughs> not late 2023, which would be sort of now, really, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so a new uh, chairperson on the way for Qantas. Uh, in the is, uh, Israeli... Uh, Hamas uh, situation. Uh, we've had confirmation this morning of a Sydney-born grandmother who was murdered in the Hamas attack on Israel. Uh, the Executive Council of Australian Jury has confirmed that Galit Carbon was killed in her home when terrorists crossed the border. Uh, in uh, Gaza itself, Israel warplanes have continued to hammer the Gaza Strip, reducing buildings to rubble. Uh, the territory is now completely sealed off, with no uh, food or medical supplies allowed in, and humanitarian groups. Uh, are calling for corridors to get aid in, saying that hospitals are overwhelmed and uh, they're uh, running out of supplies. Uh, back here, uh, police say they won't authorise another pro-Palestinian march, which is planned for Sydney this weekend. It follows uh, outrage over a, a rally uh, held by the Palestine Action Group at the Opera House on Monday with uh, some protesters lighting flares and others her chanting anti-Jewish slogans. Uh, and that was uh, held without authorisation, and uh, they're not going to give a permit for this one either. Now, uh, Michael, have you, uh, is this a story you've covered on The Country Hour about uh, the effects of climate change on beer?
3: No, no, but we should, shouldn't we? Well,
10: I think you should get on to this. Um, <laughs> scientists have warned that global warming is changed... Not cha-
3: that it's close to your heart, Adam.
10: No, it's mm. just...
3: It's a story. It's, it's a public it's service huge. here. <laughs> yeah.
10: mm. uh, scientists have warned that global warming is changing the taste and quality of European beer. Uh, new research warns that brewers will have to change their production methods in response to gli- uh, rising global temperatures. And it's all to do with yield hops. Um, mm. They're oh, saying yeah. it could fall by up to 18% by 2050.
3: That actually, uh, I did, we did do a story about the um, the hops production in Britain um, having falling into some problems. Mm-hmm. So we, we have looked at this issue, not in not in the sort of detail that you would like, Adam. But so
10: your Tetley's we, pints have been uh, <laughs> tasting a bit off, <laughs> a bit off. That's <laughs> <Yeah>. right. <laughs> now the Heineken's facing a threat.
3: <laughs> uh, but that's you know we yeah. don't, we we don't we want to drink foreign beer. We don't need Australians.
10: that. We don't need do that stuff, mate. <laughs>
3: All right, Adam. Well, at least, yeah. you, at least you gave us an interesting story. For yeah, can you
10: get on to that, please? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank okay. <laughs> All
3: right, that's my homework. All right. Thanks for that, Adam. OK. We'll talk to you at... Uh, well, we'll listen to you at 1 o'clock. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's time to uh, find out what's happening with the weather details. Gabriel Woodhouse at the Bureau. Good afternoon.
0: Good afternoon, Michael.
3: Beautiful day here in Wagga, let me tell you. Not a cloud in the sky.
0: Here's pretty much right across New South Wales. At the moment, there's just a little bit of cloud up across the, the northeast and along the northern parts of the coast. And um, this afternoon, we're expecting just this chance of a shower or thunderstorm um, in that area. But for the rest of the state, clear skies um, and warm conditions... But uh, tomorrow is really where a lot of the weather is going to be happening. So tomorrow we're looking at quite warm and windy conditions um, and that's going to be leading to some elevated fire danger, um, particularly across northern and eastern parts of the state. So at the moment we do have um, extreme fire dangers forecast for parts of the northwestern, parts of the upper central west, as well as through the greater Hunter and greater Sydney for tomorrow. But uh, more broadly speaking, we do have high fire danger right across the east and the north. So Tomorrow, those uh, warm and windy conditions are going to give way to a fairly significant uh, drop in temperatures. So um, we'll see that come through, um, particularly across the southern inland um, from the middle part of tomorrow, where we could also see some gusty showers and thunderstorms. So um, wind speeds with those could be seeing some gusts up around, you know, 70 to maybe even 90 kilometres an hour. um, And those showers aren't that don't look at the moment to produce much in the way of rainfall a couple of millimeters but for parts over the, the southwest slopes there we could be seeing you know upwards of, of 10 millimeters but it is going to be a reasonably hit and miss for for some of those higher falls
3: okay but the uh, the fire danger increasing with the sort of gusty gusty winds is that the situation not not necessarily yeah. the temperature
0: yeah, well, it's a mix of both the temperature and right. the wind. So, um, we've got fairly fresh northwesterly winds tomorrow, but the temperatures themselves are going to be quite warm. So, for, for most areas, we're looking at uh, reaching into the low to mid 30s. So, quite warm. Um, and the combination of both the, the heat and the wind is leading to those elevated fire dangers. But we will see it um, drop off quite significantly um, as we see that uh, cool change move through. So, it does seem as though it's going to produce some fairly gusty winds. And we'll see those temperatures cool, you know, five to ten or even more degrees. Um, as that change rolls through during the afternoon and evening.
3: And looking further ahead, what can we expect?
0: Yeah, looking further ahead, um, we'll see that system move out to the Tasman Sea on Friday and might just see a couple of lingering showers around the southwest slopes and maybe one or two near the coast, but rainfall totals are going to remain quite light. Um, It looks as though the next front might just skirt the south of the state on Sunday and Monday, so that's going to cause temperatures to cool a bit further. Um, particularly the overnight temperatures. So it looks like uh, by Monday and Tuesday morning we could be seeing uh, frost return to uh, much of the, the southern inland and, and the southern half of the ranges there. So cooler conditions, um, but we will see the temperatures slowly warm up during uh, next week. Slow, yes,
3: yeah, slowly warm up. That's a pattern, isn't it? And, but no sign of much rainfall.
0: No, at the moment um, there's sort of hints that we might see some more coastal showers um, during the, the middle part of next week um, as we see a fairly broad low pressure area develop over the Tasman Sea but uh, for inland areas it looks as though it's remaining quite dry and um, the, you know, the main chance of, of uh, any rainfall is going to be with this system tomorrow that is moving quite quickly so rainfall totals are going to remain relatively light and um, of the order of a few millimetres.
3: Okay Gabrielle, thanks for that.
0: My pleasure.
3: It's 20 minutes to one. You're listening to The Country Hour, broadcasting today from Wagga from the Digital Agri-Food Summit. Uh, Michael Condon and uh, Emily Doak here with you.
11: Hello,
0: I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. Airstrikes intensify in Gaza as the Israeli military hits back. Aid workers say urgent help is needed for civilians. Israel's Iron Dome missile defence system has shot down thousands of Hamas rockets in the past few days. You'll hear from an expert about how it works. And Qantas reveals its chairman, Richard Goyder, will retire before next year's annual general meeting. Those stories and more coming up on The World Today.
3: And on the Country Hour, we're going to be talking about uh, digital agriculture and wine. Uh, Emily Doak, interested in, uh, in talking about wine, are we, at the moment? Yeah. Of course. <laughs> As always. At midday. <laughs> yeah, that's
2: right. <laughs> Nothing better.
3: <laughs> exactly. After
2: lunch. Yeah, Yeah,
3: if you're in France, that's a a given, isn't it? Always a couple of glasses of white wine at lunchtime.
2: That's right. And in fact, we're going to be talking about a vineyard of the future, I suppose, which is already happening here in Australia. With us is Benjamin Harris, who is the regional viticulture manager with Treasury Wine Estate. Hi, Ben. Hi, how are you? Well, thank you. Tell me a little bit about the sorts of digital technologies uh, that you're already using in the vineyard.
12: Yeah, it's a very exciting time. I suppose a lot of these um, technologies being realized and focusing on on wine quality sustainability improving our efficiency and also future proofing of vineyard operations we 're investing heavily in um, automation including robotics um, so robotic, robotic operations in the vineyards um, as well as in our wineries um, and also use of data so um, we 're very rich in data we 've got you know over twenty years of high quality production data so Along with climate data, so ha- we're basically using data analytics and you know AI and machine learning to basically get some insights to help improve year on year what we're doing.
3: Uh, I was just going to say, you wouldn't have more than 20, wouldn't you, like for Penfolds? I mean, some of their vineyards are over 100 years, 200, 150 years old, something we,
12: like that. We do, we mm. do. I suppose when I say we've got more than 20 years, we've got in in a format that we can use yeah. and available that's ready now, um, and so we're using that sort of that very powerful, big data um sort of format we have but you're right there's um that's just the first layer of data there's a whole lot of data that over time we hope to catch you know going back hundreds of years
2: and so in terms of the vineyard you've got you mentioned automation and robots there you've got vehicles with cameras which can go along and give you insight into uh how the fruit's developing on the vine for example
12: yes so you know it's all it, it's all um coming together so obviously it mentioned you know data analytics but it's also I think and, you know, getting autonomous vehicles in our vineyard is, is something we've progressed. Um, and I think the next step is how can we passively capture data um, from these autonomous vehicles? So we're, we're bringing the two together. We're, we're capturing high-quality good data, um, and it's feeding into our data analytics, providing further insight. So that is, you know, a logical next step that we're very keen on.
2: How's it being used then, that information that you're gathering? How do you uh, put it to work
12: um, well, climate is is key for us. You know, you, you, we talk about good vintages, bad vintages um, all the time, and so our ability to, to react to that seasonal variability is key. So if we can learn, like if we can use the production data and, and how vineyards are performed from a quality point of view and yield point of view, and overlay that to the climatic conditions we're experiencing, but also going forward, um, that sort of, Longer term, um, well, up two weeks, but even out to three months, that climate outlook, and overlay, um, I suppose, it's climate scenario planning, and actually figure out how we should adjust our management um, to get the best possible outcome of those vineyards.
3: Does that mean that you need less staff, or you have you might have staff in the office that are looking at probes and looking at cameras and things, rather than being out in the vineyard, so you don't need as many people wandering around?
12: Yeah, it's really. you spot It's about how do we use our staff more efficiently and, and value add. And so, you know, so instead of gathering data and spending time looking, but basically, I suppose, scrutinizing and exploring the insights driven by that data and then making sure that we're spending our time and our resources to get the best possible outcome. Um, and I suppose. Underpinning that also is we're seeing, you know, it's not just for the wine industry, rural Australia, we're seeing a decline in, um, in people and areas. And um, for us to be, I suppose, future fit, we, we, need to, um, we need to make sure we can run efficiently with um, a declining labour force.
3: But you'll still need people at harvest time
2: we and do. things like that. We,
12: we, we're always going to need people. Um, it's making sure that we're going to need people um, and use people to get the best value for what we do.
2: So you've had that investment in the tech. What benefits, concrete, have you seen it deliver so far?
12: Um, I suppose a great example is um, some of we do sort of yield prediction, harvest timing um, modelling. Um, and last year was a classic. We had cooler than average conditions last year, um, and um, it rained at sort of times. We Through some of our climate outlooks and data, we were able to see what yields... Um, what our yields were doing you know 12 potentially doing 12 months out and um adjuster calling based on the season we were able to open up canopies to reduce disease pressure um and um and making sure our, our yields were at an appropriate level to, you know in a cooler year where it was going to ripen later
3: does that mean too that uh when you're talking about uh, drones and uh, uh artificial intelligence robots and those sorts of things um the di- where your where the vineyards are, you you don't have a real problem with the connectivity because you are sort of you know you, you're closer to areas where they uh, tend to have a bit more connectivity than maybe a you know a pastoral property you know in Western New South Wales.
12: Oh, it is a challenge. You know where it's still we're, a
3: challenge even for you? Yeah.
12: Yes, it is. Um, so where we're doing um, a lot of the initial work, we do we're okay, but we do have some sites yeah we're yet to sort of scale up and roll out that we. It is going to be a challenge and it is something we're going to have to deal with.
3: Ben Harris from uh, Treasury Wine Estates, thanks for joining us on the program today. Thank you. Thanks, Appreciate your time. And enjoy the conference. You're listening to the Country Hour. It's coming up to a quarter to one.
0: You're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales.
3: Now, Emily, one of the things we were, um, we've been talking about cropping, we've been talking about uh, vineyards, but um, uh, looking at the pastoral side of things, I mean, there's a pla- real place for technology that we're hearing about at the conference in terms of uh, new technology. And uh, maybe some not so new technology being used differently uh, in the pastoral space.
2: That's right. One of the case studies on display here is Josie Angus from uh, Central and Northern Queensland Angus Pastoral Company, running a, a huge, I'd have to say, beef cattle mm. operation uh, in terms of uh, I think four hundred thousand acres of country in that part of the world. And uh, just give me a little bit of a, an insight in terms of. What's on your wish list uh, for technology to make your business operations, which include a private abattoir, more efficient? What would you like to see?
1: I think for us it's always um, how we mesh uh, the new and the old. And I, I think as a business that's what we've, you know, we are strong on tradition, but then, you know, how do we do those things um, better and enhance what we're doing? I mean, it's, it's been really interesting listening this morning and, uh, you know, it, it, it starts to really open your mind up um you know in in things like how we you know measure um you know our our land management veg management biodiversity management all of those you know having the right tools to be able to you know to to do those sorts of things um and and just having the right um you know the right um, you know, for us, sometimes it's not always about software. It's it's sometimes you know the physical that um, you know that can lead to the biggest leaps in innovation. You know, changing a sterilizer that's got a ninety four percent reduction in in you know water and energy use. Um, those sorts of physicals you know are sometimes the greatest leaps that we can make. Yeah.
2: And uh, as I mentioned, you've got a, an, an abattoir, and mm-hmm. one of the big costs for you is getting um, compliance in terms of meeting your quality obligations. And Mm. those regulations. Would you like to see technology harnessed to make that a bit easier and cost effective?
1: A hundred percent, you know, trying to have department staff, you know, and, and the vets and inspection that we need in, you know, the location, uh, you know, for us locating, processing, you know, where the cows are is, it makes huge sustainability sense. Um, and, uh, and, and so, but then the challenges that come with that, I mean, inspection costs are $62 a head, um, which is an insane cost, um, you know, the ability to bring technology to that. That uh, that that piece in um, you know in AI in even just manning someone up with google glasses and just like we you know might have a, a you know a, a, a miner who can drive five bulldozers on a computer screen you know being able to have a vet in brisbane who might be able to undertake any modem inspection on you know at five abattoirs with a set of google glasses you know that's that's really what uh, yeah uh, a big leap for us
3: and Josie, you also looked at solar but you you couldn't actually do it so you had to go uh to to diesel but well, tell us about that because that's quite innovative anyway as well mm.
1: Where are so we're in a location where we're off grid there is no three-phase mm. power where we live um and so we explored uh everything from pyrolysis to you know to solar um i guess meat processing is a bit unique and that you know when the sun goes down the energy you know that's when e- energy comes in and if we look at where energy use lies, it's uh, 77% of our or benchmarked energy use across industry is actually in heating water Um, and so um what we were able to achieve um by just waste heat recovery was to run at about 23 percent of the benchmark of energy use of industry Um, but we do use a dirty old diesel generator to do that but if we were to build the the equivalence um in solar panels we'd be looking at you know increasing how much energy we actually had to produce, in you know, um, by 77%. So, I guess it's sometimes. Things don't fit in the boxes that you think they're going to. <laughs> exactly,
3: that's right. You've got to go with what works. And I might bring in David Statham here from Sundown Pasture because you had similar—you had energy needs—and and you came up with something innovative, which is which we've reported on the program about too as well. You're looking at looking at something new at your place, which is you know uh, 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 a game changer for you. Tell us about that.
13: Yeah, Michael, it's um, really interesting one. So about uh, 18 months ago, we embarked on a solar solar farm at the cotton gin to power the cotton gin um, so that's up and running as of mid July this year but it's got a significant investment with batteries behind that so that, that plant's now running from 7 in the morning till 11 o'clock at night so it's about 66% of, um, of the power requirements for this cotton season um, and we're in stage 2 we were fortunate enough to um, win a government grant to build a uh, stage 2 which is 2 more 9 megawatt solar farms and then an electrolyser uh, to create hydrogen and then from the hydrogen plant we're then going to make our own fertilizer with anhydrous ammonia mm. so the idea there is to have you know either a, a hydrogen or anhydrous ammonia uh generator to take the plant from you know the 66 percent to 100 percent mm. uh and create our own fuel and fertilizer on farm where just need to you just for you
3: or you might be able to. no upscale. It's, a, it's a
13: little bit more we're in the final throes of um the development of the project, and it's up to about 15 tonnes a day of anhydrous ammonia. The commercial plants without government funding are about 60 tonnes a day, but they're hundreds of millions. Mm. So this plant's like a lead lead follower, if you like. So the government granted it to us um, to promote these infrastructure and technologies to enhance them across New South Wales and and other states. It's 100% green fuel, 100% green fertiliser. And it's a circular economy where all your customers coming into the area that you're making it bringing the trucks and the product in. So you've, all your farmers are your clients, clients to sell the product back, to, back into. So we're taking 100% of the hydrogen ourselves next door, and we've got two or three other farmers that are going to take the off take of the anhydrous ammonia.
3: Terrific uh, to, to hear a little bit more detail about that. We've run out of time, but no doubt we'll uh, we'll get Lara Webster back to your place and have a chat about your operation into the future. Uh, and, Josie, thanks for your time on the program today. No, right, thank you. It's time for thank Markets. You. Let's go to Lismore Cattle.
14: Good afternoon, Lesmore, Penn, similar numbers at 659, very mixed cattle, limited export buyers, but good competition on the younger cattle from restocker orders. Light steer weaners under 200 kilos, live weight to restockers, resulting in a deer trend of 12 cents a kilos, 116 to 210. Planner condition, heavier drafts, slip 16 cents a kilo, 140 to 240. The heifer, of course, went to 200 kilos, live weight, the 30 cents cheaper, 130 to 146. However, heifers in the 200 to 280 kilo bracket sold to deer at trends making 118 to 230 and 20 cents better. Processor veal was cheaper 110 to 286. Limited yielding steers were deer at 208 to 240 and heifers slightly dearer to 222. Grown heifers to slaughter were deer at 110 to 182. Cows sold to deer at trends 15 cents a kilo. Heavy cows 142 to 174. Light and medium cows, 86 to 140, and heavy wools made
3: 152. Stephen Adams, MLA at Lismore. To carcore sheep and lambs?
11: No, there were not the numbers of heavyweight lambs compared to the previous sale. There were also a couple of pens of merino, uh, tradeweight merino lambs. Tradeweight lambs were 7 to 12 cheaper, with the new season lambs selling from 55 to 120, to average between 420 and 460 cents a kilogram. Tradeweight old lambs sold from 50 to 110. Heavyweight lambs were up to $15 cheaper, with quality a up. Old lambs over 24 kilograms sold from 114 to 120, while a pen of heavyweight new season lambs also sold for 120. weight merino lambs sold from 42 to 72. Lambs to the restockers were firm, with the new season lambs going back to the paddock sold from 25 to 80. Hoggets were cheaper, selling for $60. There were 1870 mutton yellow where most greys were 8 to 15 cheaper. Merino ewes sold from 8 to 45, while crossbred ewes sold from 18 to 40. Merino weather sold from 28 to 35, while Heavy Crossford uh, Weathers sold to $40. This is David Monk, required CTLX for MLA.
3: To Cowra Sheep and Lambs, Rob Pierce. Good afternoon, Michael. There were 6,000 lambs, up by 4,000. Quality was very
14: good for the fresh new seasons, while there were some drier lines coming through. The bulk of the yarding consisted of new seasons, with mainly trade and heavyweights penned. Stores increased considerably in number. Medium and heavy trade new seasons were 7 to 10 cheaper, 20.22 20, kilos, 75 to 109, 22 to 24, 92 to 122, averaging 4.25 to four forty cents Heavyweights were 13 cheaper, 24 plus, 113 to 144, averaging 465 to 480 cents. Stores sold from 30 to 76. And mutton numbers stayed steady for 900. Prices eased and quality was okay. Heavy first-cost use sold from 23 to 46, averaging 90 to 110. Heavy merino weathers sold from 25 to 47, averaging 110 cents. And has been Rob Pearce from MLA at the Cowra.
3: To Yash Sheep
15: and Lambs. Good afternoon. Lamb numbers lifted to 8,000. This included 3,500 new season lambs. The quality of the new season lambs was good, while old lambs varied, and there was a good spread of weights. There was an extra buyer operating, but despite this, the market lost the gains of last week and sold to weaker trends. New season trade lambs, 10 to 13 cheaper and sold from 90 to 114 for the 20 to 24 kilos. The better lambs, 470 to 500 cents. The heavyweights, 24 to 26, 108 to 130. Those over 26 kilos reached 133, or 460 cents on average. The old lambs, ease 10 to 15, with trades 48 to 112, averaging 370. Heavyweights, 24 to 26, 95 to 103, or 380 cents on average. 26 to 30, 120 to 126, and those over 30, 140 the mutton numbers lifted but the value eased. Medium weights were back ten to fifteen while heavy ewes dropped twenty-five to thirty. Medium weights twenty-one to thirty dollars. Heavy crossbred ewes thirty-six to forty. And this has been Graham Richard. Let's go a mossfowl cattle. Good
5: afternoon, Michael. There was a slight decrease in numbers for a total yarding of 675 fair to outstanding quality cattle. There was a run of 30 well-finished bee muscle yearlings reaching 420 cents, along with a few pens of well-bred wounders returning to the paddock. There was a limited supply of ground cattle and feeder cattle, and there was 87 cows. All the usual buyers were operating, selling to a stronger market. Trade yielding Steers Firm, 170 to 370. Well-finished, high-yielding yearling heifers, 318 to 420. C&D muscled heifers to process, 132 to 300 cents. Food to steers averaged 198. Heifers to feed lifted four to average 188.
3: And that's the Vale cattle report. You're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour. We say farewell to CSU and Wagga and we're broadcasting tomorrow from Kondoban. Thanks, Emily. Thanks, Michael. It's coming up to one o'clock.